And welcome to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, the service of the Black Science Fiction Society.com website. I'm your host, William Hayashi, and this is your March 3rd, 2017 edition. Um, for those of you who don't know, I, I live in Chicago and it, my mind has been blown. We have had no snow for 2017, which is just unheard of. And then, of course, you know. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a spate of 60-degree uh, weather. And, of course, crazy white folks were out there running around in shorts and a T-shirt. Um, they didn't fool me because I'm not messing with that pneumonia. Anyway, our special guest tonight is uh, she's an author. Her name is uh, Sadri Danielle. And she is, let's, I, you know, I don't even know. Uh, where do you live? I live, I actually live in Macon, which is uh, about an hour and 20 minutes south of Atlanta. Okay, cool, and welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. And for those of you who think this is a deja vu show, no. Last week we had technical difficulties, couldn't get the show started, so thankfully we were able to hold you over for uh, for another Friday. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and, yeah, it Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, I, I didn't want to miss it, but we did have like a, a secret show after. Yes, but it wasn't it wasn't recorded, but... Uh, no, so it didn't happen. Well, we, we had, yeah, we had a good chat. We had a very good chat. <laughs> um, are, are you a native to that area? Is that where you grew up? Um, I grew up in Atlanta. Um, well, I was born in Tennessee. Um, I mm-hmm. was small little town called Clarksville. It's uh, right next to Fort Campbell. And um, when I was about, I guess, 11 or 12, my mom just wanted something new, and she decided to uproot us and go to Atlanta because at the time it was the land of opportunity. And now I think everybody thought that, and so it's more people than it is jobs and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So, and yeah, I grew up in Atlanta, graduated high school. I went to Kennesaw State um for college and so yeah. And and so, you know, would you characterize yourself as like a southern girl? I, I don't I, know, you know, myself. I don't think of myself as a northern boy, but you know I I, I grew up up here. I have some southern belle tendencies. But uh-huh. um, I don't know if I classify myself as like a completely southern girl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I'm just kind of a because, person. Yeah, I always wonder because, you know, especially people who are creative in the writing area, whether it be screenplays, poetry, s- stories, or, or books, you know, I, I kind of am always curious, you know, how they consider themselves because, a lot of who they are and how they grew up does get reflected in much of their writing. You know, even even really futuristic writing, you have certain sensibilities, you have certain kinds of uh, memes, area memes that sometimes show up in their writing. So I, I just thought I'd ask. Um, in, in, in terms of being a writer, and she is a writer, ladies and gentlemen, let me go ahead. For those of you who are here live, I'm going to drop her link on Amazon in the chat room, so you can go take a look. Um, are are you 
a fairly new writer? I mean, I know you have at least three books on uh, Amazon, and, and you got a paperback for $200? That, okay, so here's, uh, <laughs> that was kind of a trial and error um, kind of thing uh, with an indie publisher, and um, yeah, I basically had to get a lawyer and get my rights back and all that kind of stuff, um, so the book that's listed for $200 is like a, I don't know why it's $200, I just you know, one day, you know, the publisher, they took my book down, and then the next thing I know, I have this book up there for $200. Um, yeah, so I don't know what that's about. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've actually been writing um, for about 10 years, and um, funny thing happened how I, you know, just kind of started pushing towards a career um, mm-hmm. in writing. Um I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. So um, I was kind of down on my luck at the time. I had just lost my job. Um, I got laid off because they restructured the department, and they were like, hey, you know, we're slashing jobs, and yours is the first to go. Here's your severance pay. Have a good day, you know. And so I was really depressed. And uh, one day I opened my laptop to, you know, just put some feelers out, throw my resume around, and I saw this icon on my desktop. And um, it was uh, a bunch of books that I started, like, because um, I had been writing, you know, during the college years and, you know, just for a long time. And I was like, you know what, since I have no job to go to, I'm going to finish this. This is going to be something that nobody can take from me. So I, you know, put the pedal to the metal and uh, I got it done. A book that took me 10 years to write, um, I finished it off in like a month and a half. And so Mm -hmm. what happened at that point, and see, I didn't know anything about the writing business. The book itself, uh, it was almost 300,000 words. So I started sending it out anyway. And so an agent wrote back to me and they were like, hey, this is entirely too long. What are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so um, so the one book became a series because I had to break it up. And so um, that's kind of how Nights the Series was born. It was actually just one big book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, me not knowing that publishers don't want, you know, a 300,000-word book, um, you know, that's kind of how that happened. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and you said you mentioned you had been writing all along. You had a lot of files. When when did you start putting you know the the phrases pen to paper? But a lot of people put fingers to keyboard. When I mean when did you start? Um, that would have been I, back I, in mm, I want to say like 2014. Um, that's when I really started just kind of you know, finishing up some manuscripts. Um, and then I just kind of got the confidence to finish it off. Um, so, so yeah, so professionally, um, it will be over the past two years. Um, that's me actually doing publications and whatnot. Um, and now it's kind of gaining some momentum, and so people are like, okay, well, where's book two? Which book two is completed, but it's still in the editing phases. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah. But, but, I mean, 
let's let's go back. You know, as as a, a younger person, like as a child, did you did you have any leanings toward writing? Um, was this something that that you picked up like in elementary school? You know, having the desire and all of that. I'm a little curious about how you started out. I was that weird kid that would go in my grandmother's backyard and dig up chicken bones that the dog was burying, and I would say, hey, I found a dinosaur bone. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I had always wanted to be an archaeologist. And so, of course, when I got to the college years, you know, I I have an undergrad in anthropology. But um, as far as the writing goes, I think I was always doing, like, little poetry, and I had this vivid imagination, but I just was not connecting the dots to um, do any, like, for real, for real writing. Um, so I can't say that I've been doing this my whole life, but um, mm-hmm. definitely um, to see in the college years I was exposed to, you know, world religions and different things that really kind of helped me connect the dots in my own head. So um, sure. as a child, I didn't really write much. I was being a scientist. Um, I had a chemistry set instead of, you know, an easy bake oven. I was that kid. <laughs> yeah, my brother actually got an easy bake oven so he could cook in his room. You know? <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is before he even went to high school. Oh, my God. I got we had, let me oh. tell you, we had an easy bake oven because me and my sisters, of course, had to share it. And um, so, you know, us being kids, we we baked everything in like one or two days. And so mom was like, you know, I'm not buying y'all no more stuff. And it was actually, I guess it was cheaper to like get us real cake mix. Right. So we had like real cake mix and stuff instead of like the little packets. So, Did that work with a light bulb? Did uh, the light no. bulb get hot? Oh, no. I was going to say. <laughs> and we had no more Easy Bake Oven because, yeah. No that more was a disaster. Yeah, that was a mm-hmm. disaster. Yeah. Oh, well. And then, okay, so, so you know, you went through the college thing. You were getting kind of, you know, looks at comparative religions and things like that. But if you were to look back, who were some of the influences you know, who you read, you know, when you were back reading for pleasure, you know, not so much for classwork and things like that, you know, what kind of books, you know, sparked your interest back then in in the early years, let's call it? Um, well, in the early years, I was reading Goosebumps. I was, I had like every Goosebumps there was, I, I swear to you that like I, I, I've loved horror my whole life and, um, as I, you know, got older, I actually didn't read as many novels. I have more nonfiction and reference in history um, books than anything. I actually maybe have less than two dozen novels um, that I own now, um, which mm-hmm. is funny because I'm a writer, and uh, but I pull more from nonfiction sources. So even in college, I didn't really read for leisure. The stuff I was reading for leisure was um, Carl Sagan and um, philosophy books and uh, 
you know, I'm trying to Voltaire and just just different, you know, things that people would actually have a hard time reading. I enjoyed reading, um, uh-huh. you know, John Milton, Paradise Lost, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno and all that kind of stuff. That is what I read. So that's kind of uh, where I draw inspiration from. So I can't really say that I'm a big follower of a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and yet you're a fiction author. <laughs> right. Well, no, but, I mean, you know, there's there's a kind of a there's a kind of conceptual leap there that that is it's curious it's not not in a bad way it's just curious you know because everybody gets to wherever they get in life you know obviously through their own trail through their own you know their their own journey and and so you know we look at you and and you have what what would you know not too long ago probably even now be called uh kind of like a classical education in terms of the kinds of things that you read and and so how did I mean how do you how did you make that conceptual leap um in in terms of you know what you write today or what what where your interest lies I'm I'm curious I'm very curious well um Here's the thing. I have lived a very interesting life, um, and I have come across some very interesting people in my life. And what I have realized is um, even some of the people that we label as evil or crazy, um, they act the way they act for a reason. And um, so taking in all of this, uh, you know, knowledge and historical stuff, I, I when I got to college, I realized that, you know, <clears throat> there's more to the world. There's more points of views. And so um, the anthropological studies actually took me into more sociology. So I learned about people, why they do the things they do. And I think it's borderline psychology as well. And so mm-hmm. I realized that people... Like almost like the you know one of the Buddhist principles. I mean, people ultimately suffer, and so um, in my writing, uh, that is reflected in my writing. I always create characters that have some real deal issues, Um, and so I just kind of put two and two together. Um, Like, what would an alcoholic do with superpowers? Like, what would he really do? And so I try to put myself in this person's mind and say, hey, you know, would this make him a better person? Would this help him kill his alcoholism or uh, would it make it worse? So um, that's kind of how I started building my world because I, I, I wanted to do something that um, was reflective of reality. Um mm-hmm. And I just kind of, yeah, drew from, you know, my own experiences and not even my own, but just listening to other people's stories and their lives, you know. Um, And that's just where I found, I just find people interesting. And um, for a long time, um, I thought myself, I thought I was an uh, introvert and I didn't really like people. Uh, 
um, especially like after high school, because I guess I, my parents, like my dad's a pastor, my granddad's a pastor, so I kind of had this sheltered, structured kind of thing. Um, and so I judged people. I judged people who were oversexed. I judged people who drank. I judged people who smoked and just lived their lives. Meanwhile, I'm judging I'm not living my own life. So when I got to college, it was a whole new experience for me. It was a culture shock. And so, um, you know, just taking that into consideration, um, it just helped me grow. And so, you know, throughout the years, I would write things and journal a lot. And um, that's kind of how I built my world um, in my fiction writing. Um, So I guess in a way... Um, each of my characters, and not just in my night series, but um, each of the characters that I create um, have a little bit of me in them. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, I just, I just look at, I look at life completely different now. And um, you know, a lot. You know, of, I just, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I'm done. Well, a lot of authors, you know, and and a lot of people who teach writing insists that uh, every character in an author's book is really a reflection of the author's character in some way, shape, or form. Um, but, I, you know, I, I know that that's the cliche that, what, you know, that they say, but I'm finding more and more people draw to, you know, maybe family members who they know very well so that they could, you know, kind of create a three-dimensional structure for a character. Or exactly like you said, you know, listening to other people, watching how they behave and things like that. So I don't, I don't find that to be so unusual. Um, you know, it was just it's just kind of unusual that, that you would have such a classical reading list, you know, for your growing up, and then, boom, you jump right into, into fiction. Um when when you, I guess when you went to um, look at that uh, that that folder or icon on your desktop and you saw all of the things that you had been writing, um, what, what basically what was the accumulation that you had in there? Was it mostly scenes, character sketches? Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, you know, situations. Uh, uh, what? What kind of writing had you done prior to you just deciding to sit down and say, hey, I want to write something all the way through? Well, (laughs) I had over two dozen and a half written novels. Um, Okay. Each of them, uh, they were probably anywhere between uh, uh, 8,000 words to 50. So, like, I had a bunch of stuff, like little short stories. Um, I had a bunch of, like, reference material where I would start typing up, hey, go research this, go, you know, just keywords, different things like that. Um, I still have this icon on my desktop. um, So every time I get a new laptop, I take this folder with me. (laughs) Right. um, but yeah, and, and it's it's a wide range of uh, genres. So it's it's horror, it's sci-fi, it's fantasy. Um, I have some romance stuff, some erotica. I have you know just just I guess dipping and dabbing into whatever I was feeling like writing at the time. 
And uh-huh. actually, um, I've had situations in this folder where I have combined two things to make one book. So everything gets used in this folder. It's my secret folder. It's like my little black book. Except, well, you know, I'm 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 curious about, you know, you said, well, I had all of these things that were half written from 8,000 words to 50,000. Yeah. And then, you know, when which begs the question, what prevented you from finishing them up until the point where you, quote, got serious, unquote? You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, life. Because here's the thing. Really? I have uh, I have uh, parents that are, which I guess they call themselves realists. And being a writer is not a real job, for one. So that's just something that you do for a hobby, Jerry. So just, you know... Go work that yeah, administrative you know. assistant job until you die. And But, you know, that was just that <laughs> generation of people. You know, they were like, you sure. know, as soon as you graduate high school, you go get a job and you work until you die. And so um, that was kind of the mentality that I adopted. So it was not something that I took completely serious. And then, mm-hmm. of course, life happens. You know, I'm in college, so I'm trying to get through college. I'm trying to work these crap jobs, and what happened was when I got laid off, I was pissed off, and so I was like, you know what, I'm tired of working these crap jobs, it's not what I want to do, and, you know, I have this passion for writing, let me try it, you know, I've tried everything else, like I worked for the IRS, I've worked for City of Atlanta, I've worked, you know, at IHOP, I mean, come on, you know, so I was just like, let me try this and just see. You know, it's something that I enjoy. Um, sure. You know, I was an archaeologist. And even with archaeology, I learned I love archaeology, but um, there's a lot of politics in archaeology. Um, and that's why there aren't very many black archaeologists, especially in this country. Um, they like to limit you to African-American archaeology. Um, so, and I've had some horror stories about that. Um, Do you know what we used to call that phenomenon when I was in college? What? Darkeology. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm serious. Everybody was saying the exact same thing. So, I mean, in the last 30, 40 years, things really haven't changed that much. Mm -mm. Um, Not at all. and, And everybody's scrambling for a, a, a shrinking pot of dollars, you know, a, a shrinking number of dollars in order to, to do their digs, to, you know, whatever it is they want to do to do their, you know, spectrographic uh, testing, you know. So, yeah, I mean, that, that probably wasn't a real long-term thing for you. Now, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Did your parents consider archaeology more serious than writing? No. In fact, the whole time I was in college, my mom was like, you need to get a degree in something that you can get a job in. What is archaeology? Like, how do you even spell that? What are you going to do with that? Like, that was the whole time. So I'm the type of person, I'm just like, mom, like, seriously. Like, I, <laughs> there's very few things or decisions that I've made, uh, you know, as far as, uh, like, career, career. 
Yeah. But mom, mom was like a hundred percent behind it. Even when um, I was like, "Mom, so you remember that book?" And she's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Yeah, I'm publishing it." Uh huh. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. So no, she, yeah, the archaeology thing. I think she thought it was like a a phase. Right. But I was like real deal though. Like I got grants from the National Science Foundation and. You know, I got internships and, like, and not just, I'm not going to say that I was necessarily playing on my race, but there was a lot of stuff out there for black archaeologists. So I applied for it, and I got most of them. So, you know, you got to do <laughs> But, you know, there the thing with archaeology is, like you said, it's a money pot. So you might get a grant that funds a dig for, say, three months, but then what are you going to do after that? and it's a bunch of traveling time. You have to pay your own traveling expenses. And so what I didn't realize was a lot of the people that I was in class with came from money. Like they had, you know, like like my guy, my one of my good friends, Will, like when he graduated, he had a house and a car waiting. Like, you know, he he went off to Florida. He does aquatic archaeology. Like, they, you know, they had trust funds and, you know, different things like that that I didn't have. And it was just, you know, they didn't care about, you know, making $9 an hour as an intern. And I'm like, okay, well, right. I'm going to pay this car note. <laughs> so um, it was just not realistic for me for where I was at the time. Um, which, and then, of course, you know, she go, mom, mm-hmm. you need to go back to school and get your masters in, in business. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, you got to give her some credit, though. At least she didn't send your butt to college to go find you a man. You know, there was well, yeah, and and see, she was a little worried about that because I was that see, I was that weird kid. You know, I didn't date the whole time I was in college. I was just, you know, I just went to school and went to work and, you know, dug up bones. Like well, the whole time. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I'm not. No, I'm not going to dig into that. I mean, I'm, you know, a lot of people go to college to go to college, not to recreate. You know. Right, um, and I guess I was just know, that it, person. I don't know. Life just didn't happen like that for me. Now, you know, the now my sister, on the other hand, um, my youngest sister, she went off to Albany State. She joined the band. She met the guy of her dreams, and she is married to him to this day. <laughs> you know, so uh, and we lived two different lives, but um, you know, that just wasn't in the cards for me. So, right. um, you know, and I mean, there's nothing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not thinking that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, everybody's experience is different. You know, I went to college when I was 17. I was so happy to be out of my parents' house. I could. Get, I mean, I'm telling you, <laughs> um, but. Okay, so, but in in all of that time, though, it sounds like even in college, you were probably writing, though, right? You were doing your snippets here and there, you know, things like that. Were you doing yeah. that or were you just really, yeah. See, I kind of, I got, I sensed that. And, of course, you know, if, if you've got a great imagination, you can live vicariously through your imagination and through your writing. So maybe it wasn't so essential that you went running around, hitting the club, whatever you do, you know, <laughs> joining a, what is it, joining a, 
I almost said a frat, it's a, a sorority or, yeah. you know, anything like that. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that that you can still do to to feed your imagination. Now, were you a people watcher in college? Did that help your writing as well? Were you um, a little more detached from the people around you? I was, uh, there's an anthropological term called uh, participant observation. <laughs> So um, that was me, pretty much. I watched from afar, but I spent my college years uh, going to Buddhist temples. I went to mosques. I went to a Baha'i temple. I danced around with some Wiccans. I was actually... Naked um, or not? Were you clothed or dancing with them or naked? No, I was fully clothed. I was fully clothed. All right, and don't even laugh because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I do, I do, I do. And they do do that. I do know Uh some people that do that. Like they they wait for Sam Hain or, 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 you know, Beltane. What's the other one Um, that they dance naked to? But, yeah, I do know people that, you know... But I guess what I'm saying is, um, like, oh my God! So I went to, I went to a, a Catholic service. Like, oh my God! Right. Like, what was oh it about comparative religions that you really liked? Mm-hmm. Um, what was? What do you think it was? Uh, I I love I love Hindu stuff. Yeah, but I mean, you you really. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the right phrase. It's not cross the Rubicon or anything like that, but, I mean, it sounds like you really enjoyed, you know, experiencing all of these different religions. And a lot of people don't do that unless it's for some kind of scholarly study. Was this like an, not an affectation, but was this kind of like a hobby of yours or or was this study related, you know, in terms of the archaeologist in you? What do you think it was? Here's the thing. I'm um, I'm the type of person, um, I have always been in search of God. Um, okay. Like I said, uh, my, my family history is pretty interesting. I come from a lot of pastors and a lot of masons. And so mm-hmm. my idea of who God was was kind of shaped by that. What happened was I was just always intrigued by... Uh, Um, occult studies. I was always intrigued by it, but of course, living in the household that I was in, you know, that was, that wasn't acceptable. But here's the thing, and, you know, I hope my mom isn't listening, but um, when I was about, it was right before we moved to Atlanta, my mom, actually, she used to read tarot cards. And this is when she was kind of finding her way too, because, um, like we we gone to like Nation of Islam mosque growing up and all kind of stuff, but um you know yeah she was like you know had us in the kitchen making bean pies one time so um but you know she was trying to find her way too and so sure. my mom used to read tarot cards so you know like on Friday night some of the ladies from the neighborhood would come over she would do tarot cards so when she wasn't around I would go play with them because they were just intriguing. So this is, you know, this is me 11 or 12. Um, uh-huh. One of the first books that I ever, I took from my mom was the Necronomicon, which, you know, within, it has its own uh, uh, 
it, it gets a bad rap, um, but what I will say is it's not necessarily a book of fiction. And so right. um, so that kind of imprinted on me very early about uh, what I believed in. So church okay. just never did it for me. And, um, you know, I would go to church and, you know, people running around and clapping and crying and falling out and, then you go next week and they're doing the same thing. And it's like, okay, well, is it working? You know, so um, I, I went on this search for God. And so right. I was like, okay, out of, you know, this, you know, 7 million people on the planet, I mean, somebody's got to have it right. And so I just kind of did that. And um, I had to experience God through the eyes of other people. So that's why you can't read about a religion and just uh, – you know, really understand it. One of the things that I did learn is there's certain religions that you can't understand if you don't understand the language. And I think Islam is one of those. Because um, I, uh, after Ramadan, because see, my, my, room, my college roommates, I had uh, a Pakistani Muslim, and I had a mm-hmm. black American Muslim, and then I had a Mexican mm-hmm. um Roommate, so you know it was all mixed, so it was you know different. And so after Ramadan, I went to the masjid with them. And so of course, you know, I get there, the women have to go upstairs, and so the men are downstairs in the main room, and it's just you know it's layers and layers, but everybody's dressed in like their their best. It's, you know, it was it was really beautiful. It really was. And so. um you know, I understand that a lot of people think that it's one of those religions that kind of, you know, subjugates women and whatnot, but I had to go see, you know, what was really going okay. on. And, um, but what really got me interested was Sufism, which is like the mystical Islam, um, you know, where you get to talking about the jinn and, you know, magical worlds and, and the layers of heaven and all that kind of stuff. So um, one thing always leads to another with me. And uh, so, yeah, I could go on and on and on about this stuff. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of what happened. It, it's not necessarily a hobby. I'm just trying to find God for myself. And it's funny because at all these years, I ended up back in church. And so that's where, that's kind of where I am now. Okay. But it's hard to dismiss everything else that you've learned. So even now, my Christianity is different. I I'm, I kind of think on the same path as like maybe the Essenes or, you know, some of the Gnostic Christians from like way back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. That That's kind of where my thought pattern is with, with Christianity. All right. Well, I mean, you know... <laughs> The whole the whole discussion about religion kind of breaks down in in into two sides of uh or, or two different perspectives. One is taking religious belief on faith, and the other is a more empirical kind of perspective. Um and, and I don't want to spend any time really talking about religion because everybody's different. Everybody you know, and, and as much as we may all go to, let's say, a same church, you know, every single person in that church probably has a belief system that is different from the person sitting next to them in, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. And so 
you know, the, the whole thing about religion for me is the fact that since it's such an individual experience, um, and yet when you look at the belief structures of, of practically all religions, they have very, very similar memes and tropes. Um, it's it, it's fascinating to watch. You know, I, I'm an ecumenical pastor myself, but I'm an empiricist. So, you know, I make no bones about the fact that I have, uh, you know, some some abiding doubts about the existence of God because, you know, I, I'm not the kind of person who says, oh, well, a tree is proof of the existence of God or a baby or, or you know, something like that. So, uh, but, you know, people have no problem asking me to come, you know, deliver a sermon or marry them or things like that. So, of course, everybody's, everybody's um, belief structure is different. Now, what I want to ask you, though, is with the way you feel, um, does that reflect itself in your writing at all? Um, absolutely. And um, uh-huh. well, let's, let's go there. Let's go. Let's yeah. go to your first book, okay? And 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 tell the audience a little bit about how you structured that story, you know, and and relate it to specific things in your life. And, and then I think people are going to get a pretty idea, good idea of both what the book is about, but also how you approach storytelling as an author. Okay. Well. Um... Knights of Enmity, it's a, well, it's classified as an urban fantasy series, but it's, uh, I think it kind of crosses different genres. And so, um, basically, you have a band of magicians, and they're the modern-day okay. knights of the round table. Um, and uh, within the book, I've created the 33 Orders of Man, and basically they're, if you if you've ever, you know, read Harry Potter, you know how you have the different houses. You've got Gryffindor and Slytherin and whatnot. Um, that's kind of how the 33 orders of man are, except um, each of the orders has a different um, magical path. So, for instance, um, like my order of red axes, um, that order is based off of the mythology of Shango. So uh, their power is they they travel through lightning, um, they can harness lightning, and they carry red axes. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, just to, you know, just kind of give a short, um, I have uh, the Cult of Winged Reapers. They are basically my Wiccans. They they do nature magic, and um, they, you know, they grow these powerful herbs and, and whatnot that um, other orders often go to them to, to get. Um, my order of the blue goddesses, their magic is based on the mythology of Kali. So even in their symbol, um, you can see the blue goddess dancing. Um, mm-hmm. their, their outfits, I don't know if you guys have seen any of my posters, but they all dress in blue and they have a, um, a skull belt much like Kali. So as you see some of my religious, um, um, I I put all of that stuff in my book. So I've created a realistic magical system in night um, versus like the fanciful magic of like, you know, Harry Potter or, you know, whatever. Um, So this is like real life kind of research here. 
um, my keepers of the crossroads, they're they they're the hoodoo. Um, they you know they uh, they talk with Papa Legba, which and in the book I do make a distinction between Papa Legba and Baron Samedi, which a lot of people think are the same deity. Um, mm-hmm. And depending on which uh, which path of voodoo that you you know that you follow. You actually have to petition Papa Legba to even speak with Baron Samedi. So, you know, uh, I make that distinction. They're two different characters. Um, so I, I kind of, uh, as far as, like, the characters go, um, my Black Knight, they um, they practice chaos magic. So this is, like, the magic of God, the magic of creation, this is mm-hmm. creating something out of nothing. Um, you you control the chaos and make it into something that you want. And so essentially, um, if I had to give it a comparison, um, it's kind of like the force, I guess. Um, and so with that, they learn to um, harness or, you know, um, control different elements. So, um, but in the meantime, they're very human, and they are each going through something. Um, well, let's so, yeah. back up just for a second and ask mm-hmm. you. You mentioned that it's kind of like um, urban fantasy. So are are we talking about a tale that's kind of told in, in current times? Yes. So this is okay, all so happening we... in, like, modern times. Okay, cool. Um, and And then... You know, uh, it sounds like you have a lot of room to maneuver, you know, in terms of crafting a story. Um, when when you thought out the plot for this story, um, w- were you looking at, I don't want to say conflict, but, but yeah, I guess conflict between the various kind of religions? I mean, how did you structure this so people can kind of get an idea of what it is they're, they're, they're getting into when they get the book? Um, yes. Um, conflict is definitely a major theme because, I mean, um, you know, it, it's called Knights of Enmity. So, you know, that's, that's opposition, you know. Um, right. Uh, so, but the opposition happens on different levels. So, of course, not all of the 33 orders of men get, you know, get along. So you, you have your council of nine who try to regulate the magical people, but they still end up killing each other and, you know, doing all kind of crazy stuff. But the major <laughs> opposition is between heaven and earth. So what's going on is you have, this is, you know, if you, I, I follow a lot of conspiracy theories too. So if you believe that, you know, this is the time of the end times, this is the end times. And so heaven says, hey, it's time to break those seals of revelation and we're going to descend so we can build this heaven on earth. But in order right. to do that, you must destroy the old ones. So here you have these black knights, powerful magicians who say, hey, you're not going to destroy anything because this is where we live. This is our home. This is, you know, we're the gods down here. So that is the major opposition in the book. But then 
their personal actions, you know, like, you know, sleeping with someone's wife or just, you know, just major drama spills over on a lower level between the orders um, causing enmity between them. So it's it's Mm -hmm. conflict everywhere. So that is a major theme of the book. Um, And even when the heavenly orders descend, there's conflict there Um, because Mm -hmm. um, in my book, I I study uh, angelology too. I love to study angels. And um, uh, there are different orders of angels. Um, So I have always had this idea that the different orders of angels are kind of like different races of people, and they all have a different job, and they look different. Um, Like, for instance, Michael, which is probably the most popular angel all over the world, um, in many descriptions of him, he has six wings, and they're green. They're emerald green. Then you have Gabriel, who is a cherub. He has four wings. Um, You know, some cherubs look like sphinxes. Um, And I just found this to be very interesting. So um, I wanted to kind of... uh, tap into that as well. So, um, but the major theme of Knights of Entity is can you use magic to defeat God? Now, you can harness chaos magic, which is the magic of God. Can you defeat okay. God with it? So um, I have a um, an old seer, his name is Dante, in the book, and you know, he gets to thinking about it. He was like, you know, how can we be God in the creation of someone else? You know, mm-hmm. so I, I kind of throw, you know, that kind of stuff, and I'm going to tell you where that idea came about. Um, during my own spiritual journeys, um, there it's something what I, I call them the conscious committee, but these are, um, you know, groups of black people who have found occultism. And so they reference themselves as gods, like, hey, God, hey, God, I'm a God, I'm a God, I'm a God. And so they don't necessarily believe in God or pray to God because they believe themselves to be God. But if you look at the quality of their lives, their personal lives, it's like, how are you a God if you can't pay your phone bill and you're selling incense at your trunk? If you are truly manifesting this great power, we, you, you would be able to see it outwardly as well. So you have these people that feel like magic is the way, but then right. they hate themselves. They're depressed. You know, they you know they don't understand certain texts, and so they take it out of context. And so, and that's kind of what happens with religion anyway. But um, in studying occult studies, there are certain books that you're not even supposed to read without having a, a, a certain amount of meditation and, and there's, you know, things that you have to do to even crack the book open. Um, so uh-huh. that's kind of where that idea came about. Can you really fight God with magic? How is that going to work? Can you, us having free will, will that even affect the outcome of what has been prophesied? So that's kind of the major theme in Knights of Entity. That's kind of cool that you put in you, that that you have those arguments inside 
the worldview that you're presenting in your in your creative universe because um, that that's something that first of all it, it gives you legs in terms of additional volumes after the first one because mm-hmm. there's so much there's so much fertile ground to cover um, the whole end times thing I don't know because basically you know the rapture occurred February 10th 2003 and a lot of people didn't notice because nobody's missing mm-hmm. you get that joke. Okay, there you go. Anyway, but 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 serious. <laughs> a lot of people don't like that joke. I told that in church once, and uh, I had half the people laughing and half the people glaring at me like I wasn't taking something seriously. Um, but but the, the thing is, it sounds like what you've done is you have created a a, a nice fertile um, universe for for your your characters and for your conflicts because you know plot points are just as important as the characters because you want to build a structure that's that's comprehensive and one that satisfies your readers you mm-hmm. know they may not like everything that goes on but they'll go man that was a great story um yeah somebody in the chat room says in church no i did tell that story i was uh, <laughs> I was doing a I was doing a sermon on community and how we treat each other and how people tend to feel that their religion, because it's so personal to them, makes them in some way superior to people who believe other ways. Mm-hmm. So that that joke was a way to kind of knock everybody down. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, on the way out, people said, okay, I, I didn't like it at first, but it was pretty funny. So I was right. satisfied. <laughs> um, anyway, uh so, I mean, is this kind of your going to be your author's playground for a while, playing in this creative universe, looking at comparative religion that way, and then showing comparative religion in a way through the conflicts and the differences rather than just pointing at one or another and saying, well, this is the good one, this is the bad one, these are the good people because they believe this way, these are the bad people because they believe that way. Or, or are you? I mean, it sounds like you are doing a pretty decent tap dance around the whole issue. I mean, is that the way you feel you 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 wanted it to be? Um, yeah. Because here's the thing: I feel like everybody's got a piece of the pie, and mm-hmm. if everyone puts their pieces together, there's a whole pie. So essentially, no, none of the orders are more powerful than the other, except well. The, well, the Black Knights and the Magi—they're—they're they're the most powerful. I do dub them as that, but, um, but here's the thing: whereas, like in Book One, there might be a conflict with, you know, one order, and they may have lost that battle. They come back in Book Two, and you know, they overpower, you know, their oppressors or whatnot. So it's really a tug and a tug of war, and I wanted to express that, hey. No one is above the other, and if you work mm-hmm. together, you know, mind you, there's this impending threat of of destruction overhead. So if you guys mm-hmm. can't get it together, you cannot fight together. And if you're, you know, in you know, that divide and conquer thing, that's kind of what's going on right now. So, sure. um, you yeah. know, and it gets it gets worse because I'm going to tell you, I've. Nice will be my playground for a little while because mm-hmm. it just keeps growing. It keeps growing and keeps growing, and I keep killing people, and they keep coming back. And, <laughs> and so 
how how many how many volumes do you think you you might have? Have you decided oh, yet, or do you have an idea? I don't know. I don't know. Um, like I said, it, it started off as one book, and now I have uh, I have three completely written. Um, the first three completely written. The first is of course published, um, and then I'm working on the fourth, and then I'm working on a prequel, which is like before the Black Knight became Black Knight, um, which kind of goes into like the history of them. And um, sure. so I have no clue. <laughs> I'm going to just roll with the wave and see where it goes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have. I already know how it's going to end, but it's just getting. Well, to that's the end. always good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's always good. Um, you know, my my uh, one of my mantras is whenever I start writing a book, I always know I know that what the ending is going to be because I want to pick a good ending. And and I've you know I've said this before, but you know one of the the most powerful parts that people remember of any story is the ending. You know both both for movies and short stories and uh, novels. You know when when somebody walks out of the theater, you know they're they're usually thinking about well was that a satisfying ending? Was that a BS ending? You know um, and so. For me, that's that's how you know when I start a book, I know basically how it's going to end. You you actually have a whole series where you know the series is going to end. Um, have you mapped out you know some of the volumes in the middle? You've got four already. Um, the, do do these first four suggest about how many total volumes you might even have in the series? Uh, I know it's going to be at least it's going to be at least seven. At least, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I could probably condense some stuff, but um, here the thing is, I kind of leave. I'm that author, and I might piss some people off because I love cliffhangers. So they always end with a cliffhanger. Each one of your books. Yeah. You know, if you were a man, I would go, you bastard. No, because I, I know how people, I know, especially if you don't have the next one written, people do get mad, don't they? You know, I mean, have you seen that? It, like, okay, I had I had somebody, his name was, let's say his name was Jarvis, um, <laughs> just for the sake of argument. And so he, he started reading my series and, um, you know, he read the first one, and then uh, I'm not sure exactly if I finished the second one by the time he read the first one. And then the third one, I, I did a trilogy. He said he was reading real slow and savoring it because he knew that I don't, I'm, I'm not near ready to do the fourth one. So I know exactly what you're saying, but, boy, you're going to get a lot of people mad at you doing that cliffhanger thing unless you can get a lot of them out at one time. You know that. You know that. Because, you know, I got, I got people beating on my, my phone and my email. Hey, hey, how, how close are you to the next book, you know? Um, and I didn't even leave mine as a cliffhanger. But, but if, I think if you write compelling characters and you have a good story and you just tell it well, you know, those are three essential ingredients. Not everybody can pull them off. But if you do that, um, you're you're going to have a certain amount of serial success. 
I mean, I know how I was when I would read books. You know, comic books were one thing. Sometimes a comic book would leave off with a cliffhanger, and you'd have to wait a month or two months to see how that would resolve. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that. I, I know the psychology of entertainment, it, at least in terms of writing. So you're going, you're going to do that six times. You're going to leave with a cliffhanger. You know, people are, people are going to either love your ass or they're going to hate it. You know, they're, they're going to read it and they go, you know, I really like her stories, but I don't. Every time she in, I get to the end of the book, I got to wait to see how this this resolves itself. So that, it's an interesting strategy. I'm going to come back to you in a couple of years and I'm going to ask you how that worked out for you. Or I'm just going to go on Amazon and see how people say they like, you know, how you how you did your story. But that's pretty bold. I mean, seriously, I think that's bold, and I don't mean that in a joking way or anything like that. Um, but let me ask you this: How long does it take you to write a whole volume? Let's say. If I just put pen to paper, oh, and I'm an old right. school writer too, by the way. Um, I always start my novels off with a pen and a three-ring binder or a spiral notebook, spiral notebook. Yeah, I, I get um, you, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But if I just do it, no interruptions, I can actually write one in a month. And I actually got a lot of practice with that NaNoWriMo thing. And so okay. I was like, you know, I wonder if I can, um, you know, write a book in a month. And I can. And I actually uh, wrote book three in a month. But that's because the well, drama I mean, is so high by that time, it just kind of froze. Right. So, <laughs> Well, how many words is that per book when, when um, you can do it in a month? Well, I scaled, like I said, I scaled it down. So it was uh, the first book is uh, slightly over 125,000 words. Um, okay, that's still considerable. That's a good size book. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but the second book is a little bit larger than that. But I'm still editing. Um, that one's actually about 130, which it'll probably be. I try to keep it within that right page, you know, that uh, word count. Um, okay. You know, I'm well, it's, it's a lot now. more palatable than 300,000. Well, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not making fun of you because no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. My first book was 330,000 words, which would have been 750 pages. I believe it. Yeah. And, and, and nobody, nobody looked at that at all. You know, the, you know and, and I realized, and fortunately I got an editor that cut a third off. You know, um, 500 pages is a, is a lot. But I, I wasn't good enough to write a shorter book yet. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and my stories took that long. And it was, you know, I figured, well, people are going to either buy it, read it, or whatever, or they're not. Um, but now I'm, I'm, I'm learning to use a lot less words. You know, there's a paucity of, of, of my, my writing now that I never could have achieved, you know, when I started writing in 2001. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I, I wrote that 330,000 words in nine months. You know, it was like birthing a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but but I think it's pretty cool that you can do 100,000 words in, in a month. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a very respectable rate. Um, how, much, how much time a day do you spend writing? Um, well, 
um, like I said, I did that when I didn't have a job because right. now my job um, really affects my writing. But I actually downloaded that, uh, I think it was Y Writer. Um, it's a like a writing program because I was like, I need to help. But it actually helps you track your word counts and stuff. And so, um, like, I had one day I busted, like, 12,000 words one day, just straight, like, from, you know, the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. Like, I had that kind of day um, where I was just, you know, drinking coffee and eating donut sticks. And, um, but, yeah, like, so I know it's possible, but it's very difficult when you, you know, work in a 8-to-5 kind of job and, you know, you have to try to etch in. I do midnight writing. I'm always writing between, like, this time, like, you know, 10 to midnight, um, like, after mm-hmm. work days. Um, I dedicate most of my Saturdays and Sundays to writing because that's the only free time that I really have. Um, yeah. So, but, yeah, I know it's possible, but that's only if I have absolutely nothing else to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I learned when I did the first book, and even though it was wordy, 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 um, was I learned the method, a method of making sure that you can finish a book. Because during the time I was writing the first novel, you know, I I started going to writers groups and meeting other people. And some people would say, oh, yeah, I've been working on this novel for 10 years. And I go, "Well, well, 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 what keeps you from finishing? And they would go, well, you know, I got, I got to work, I got kids, I got, you know, I'm in a relationship, or, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, I got a, I got a, uh, an Oldsmobile, and I got to fix it every day, or whatever, whatever <laughs> their excuse was. And and I, I I saw how easily you could get distracted because if you if you do have a job, that's a kind of tough thing. So my method was, you know, every night at ten stop what I'm doing and then go start writing. And then, you know, I would go to one or two in the morning. Um, and then that, that was like treating it like a part-time job. And it sounds like you have that same kind of ethic where you can kind of just really burn through and, and get it done. Um, as you're, as you're writing, uh, do you have any kind of, I mean, do you have any input from other people or is this kind of a singular experience for you? Do you just keep writing on your own? Um, and, and if you do that, then do you have people read it behind your writing, you know, you, you having finished it? Um, no, I don't have anybody read anything until it's completed. Okay. Um, so I kind of do my own thing. Because here's the thing, uh, William, I, I'm a selfish kind of writer. I write what okay. I want to read. And sure. so... It's always a plus when you have people that are interested in your work and then it's like, oh, my God, I'm humbled by that because I'm literally, I write for fun. Like, I love doing it. I love building these worlds and these crazy characters. And um, so to be completely honest with you, um, like for this first book, I skipped that whole beta reading process and all that kind of stuff that, you know, typical writers do because what, I, I mean, I, not to say I didn't really care what people thought, but I didn't really care, you know, because it was kind of like this is my own kind of goal um, and this is the story that I want to write. You have to be an open-minded person to be able to appreciate Knights of Enmity. 
this is not something that um, I think, uh, I mean, you can put a disclaimer up there because uh, I know that people are not going to like it, but there are mm-hmm. lots of mm-hmm. people that do like it. I get a lot of good feedback. I got, I had to shut my inbox on my Facebook page down because this little guy from Africa, he kept inboxing me, and he was like, where is book two? Where is it? But where is the link? Well, and I'm like, guy, like seriously, okay. I, I'm in love with you. I'm in love with you, like all of that. And I'm just like, dude, seriously? Like it started creeping me out. Then I had another girl. She was inboxing me. She gave me a, a two-page spill about my book and how she wants to, she needs for this to happen in book two. Like, basically, she gave me an outline of what's supposed to happen. And, you know, but I feel like when I get reactions from people, I'm doing something. And uh, it's funny because um, I started doing my book trailers, and so I put it on Facebook. And um, luckily, I mean, honestly, I don't know how it happened because um, I did a few um like internet kind of um, advertising things, you know, there's a bunch of them, like on Twitter and stuff like that. Sure. But um, sure. yeah, I started doing that, and I actually have like over 150,000 views of my trailer. And um, but I was looking at some of the comments on some of my trailers, and they were like, "Oh, you're Illuminati. Go back to Jesus." All this kind of stuff that I was not prepared for. And so it wasn't even about my writing. It was about assumptions of my writing. Right, you know? right. Well, I mean, so. here's, here's the thing. I've, I've been noticing across the Internet a lot of these media sites, you know, like Huffington Post and, and oh, even IMDb. All of yeah. these sites are removing their comment sections. And the reason why is because of the bell-shaped curve of IQ distribution. For those who know about it, you know, top dead center is 100, and that's average IQ. Yeah. But that, 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 but that distribution curve also proves that just a skosh, just a hair under 50% of the people out there are of subnormal IQ. And, and as writers, we have to have a thick skin um, because people – well, well, you know exactly why. You know exactly why. Mm-hmm. You know, people people are looking at your trailer making assumptions about your books because, first of all, they're too stupid to read a whole book. I mean, a whole book might explode their head. Um, so, yeah, that I mean, that's a tough thing. But like you said, at least if you're getting a reaction out of people, they're paying some kind of attention. So that's a good thing. But you just, you, yeah, you just have to be, oh, okay, I'll give you a good example. All of my reviews on Amazon are four- and five-star reviews, except mm-hmm. one guy. One guy gave me a one-star review for uh, Discovery. And I was mad as a mofo when I saw that because it was like, first of all, I took it too personally. You know, not and, and then I had to realize, well, not everybody's going to like what you read, will you? And I go, well, why not? And I go, look, first of all, you shouldn't be talking to yourself and answering yourself. So let's have this discussion some other time. But, I mean, he, this was a white guy who thought the idea of blacks living by themselves up on the moon was, was ludicrous. He said it was like a 
a Saturday Night Live sketch. And then, oh you know, most God. blacks I talk Yeah, no, well, most blacks I talk to say, man, if I had the opportunity to go live on the moon with just us, you know, I'd have a rocket up my ass. So, you know, it, it, it just, and then, then I stopped and I took a breath and I stepped outside of William mode into detached critique mode and I realized that it was one of the perfect, it was a perfect review for my work because it showed the the, the sociological dichotomy between blacks and whites and their experiences mm-hmm. in the country. And so I, I even put that review up every now and then when I have to give a talk about my books, I'll put that one up and go, I want you to, I want you to look at one of my favorite reviews and then people look at it and they, the first thing they see is they see it's one star and they go, what? Um, and I said, well, here's why. Because it, it shows that what I wrote had meaning. What I wrote was exactly right. It was on the button. Um, but I, you know, and, and the other part of what you said, you know, about the whole groupie thing, and I really like the African accent at the very beginning of this brother who was <laughs> inboxing your butt from Africa. But that was that 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 made the whole story for me. But here's the thing. Remember that movie with uh James Kahn and Kathy Bates called Misery? Oh my god, please do not bring that up. That scares me. Stop. Well, you but see here's the thing. You're, you're now you're now in that rarefied atmosphere because you already had one woman, you know, give you the plot to your second book. Yeah, you know. oh God! Listen, if you knew, she can't die. no, listen, you know? hold on, William. Like seriously, I'm the most paranoid uh-huh. person on the planet. I believe in UFOs. I believe in uh, chemtrails. I believe in Bigfoot. I believe in, you know, genetic experiment, star children. Yeah, no, no. See, you don't have to worry about that nonsense. See, none of that nonsense is going to touch you. But if you get some crazy African, and I don't know what country came from, deciding to take a little vacation in the States with, uh, you know, with a, with a, a sledgehammer and a piece of 4 by 4 then you've got trouble. Those are oh the troubles. God. And I think about that, too. I think about that too. I mean, I think about, you know, I I live in a fairly large apartment building, a lot of apartments, you know, but it's it's a low rise, and I wonder, you know, if all of a sudden somebody takes offense at what I've written, you know, other than the fact that I might have to shoot them. I mean, there's really you you don't know what your your fans or your detractors are going to do so you might as well kind of put it out of your mind because you're it's probably not going to be easy for you to predict and and i understand the paranoia um somebody somebody told me oh you know when you get to your third book you know you got to watch out cuz you know white folks are going to kill you and i thought well no i don't think so I hope, you know, and everybody says, well, I hope not. Well, can you plan your life on hope? Like that kind of hope? I don't know. So I understand the paranoia. And then you've had had that online taste of semi-stalking. But but I hope that that doesn't in any way dissuade you from, you know, kind of plying your trade, continuing on what you do. So somebody in there is talking about people stalking at conventions. Thanks for that. 
I just started going to conventions. I never even thought of that until this person puts it in the chat room. You know? And, and and I had kind of I had an example and didn't think about that stalking aspect until right this second. You know I what? I like guess five. I wish I knew who guess five was. I would high five them. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm standing there, and some a woman came up behind me and said, "Hey, William," and I, you know, I immediately stiffened up because you you don't know. And she said, oh, yeah, I saw you at uh, Worldcon and, and here, and I really like the work you do, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I didn't even think to be relieved. You know, I didn't even think to be relieved. I was just, well, thank you very much. Yes, you know, I was thinking, yes, I did a good job. And now, yes, five has brought out the stalking paranoia in me. So thank you very much. Well, um, you brought anyway. it you see what happens? I believe in karma. Well, that's, no, that is true. That is true. It is my bad. Now, in, in terms of marketing for yourself, do you, have you gone out in public to do marketing? Have you been to a convention, um, book signings, or anything like that? Yeah, I was at OnyxCon last week. Or was that last week? Yeah, last weekend. Yeah, it was Jarvis last week. Jarvis was there. Yeah, and um, so next week I'll be at the... Atlanta Sci-Fi uh, in North DeKalb Mall. So I have okay. a few. Um, I have a few cons that I'm going to be at um, this year, but they're all going to be kind of like in the Atlanta area. So next year I want to go to WorldCon, right? WorldCon. Well, yeah, 2000, 2018 WorldCon. I'm going right. to try to get. I'm trying to get fifty. Um, what what are loosely considered Afrofuturists to come as a block of people for Worldcon in San Jose in 2018 um, for for political reasons, for for marketing reasons, for sociological reasons, for you know all kinds of reasons because um, the. the the convention circuit, the the major convention circuit, Worldcon. I was just at Boston, which is uh, Boston, and this was they're in their fifty fourth year. They are really trying. At least the planning committees are trying to make some inroads into being more inclusive. Because up until a short time ago, essentially all of these conventions were pretty much in terms of awards, in terms of uh, uh, talking about you know the kind of um, creative art, you know, things people do, books, stories, you know, uh, shows, movies, they were they were really, they were all vanilla white. And we have all of the oh, typical, wow. you know, the, 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 the typical stories about, you know, laughing about Star Trek with the, the one brother in the red shirt who was dead after the first six minutes. <laughs> and, so, and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to include the, you know, kind of like the Afrofuturist movement, first of all, because it's pretty exciting. There's a lot of exciting people who are writing, um, black people who are writing a science fiction who are not getting the recognition for the quality of their work. So at least they're making an effort. But when you think in terms of, you know, all, you know, and, and then there's the, the Black Age conventions where obviously it's becoming 
more and more of a networking event because people are seeing the same faces. They're starting to branch out. There's there's a huge pool. Like I said, I, I did some conservative estimates, and I think there's probably around 7,000 African Americans in the United States of America who in the last 10 years have published um, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. That's a lot of authors. 7,000 authors is a lot of authors. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you about the math later. But do they get the same kind of recognition as half-ass white male authors? Well, no, yeah. they don't. Right. And the reason why is because of editors, it's because of agents, and it's because of publishers believing somehow that they cannot, they don't know how to market it, or they don't think that there's enough of a market out there. And, you know, and, and my answer to that is, well, well, how many, you know, blue-ass people do you think James Cameron wrote Avatar for? Was he doing it just for the big-ass blue people crowd? No, he was telling a story about blue people for regular people. And, and so, you know, at least in my world, I'm, I'm writing stories about black characters that are, are straight-up science fiction. It's not like, it's not even like urban science fiction. It's, it's just science fiction with black characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are creating whole universes where, you know, blacks are, are dominant in the story. And so you've got all of these gatekeepers. You've got these agents, publishers, um, reviewers, critics. All of these people are, are, are what do they call that? Uh, door gatekeepers. Gatekeepers who because of their their either their their uncomfortableness, their lack of experience or just they just don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be bothered. You know, I, I got my niche, I'm doing my niche, I'm not branching out. And so even black publishers have to overcome that inertia that's out there, you know, because it, which has existed since the golden age. I mean since the nineteen thirties up until about the last five, six, seven years, it's been the same. It's been the same, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, we all all have to, first of all, keep doing what we're doing and and realize that we're not going to reap the same financial benefits as lesser white talent merely because of the lay of the land. Now, I mean, you're talking about a seven-book series. I'm doing a seven-book series. You know, we've got all kinds of people out there who are doing steampunk, steampunk, uh, sword and soul. We have, you know, all kinds of creative universes out there that have been put together by some extraordinary black writers, and and they deserve to be heard. They deserve to be lauded, you know. Um, in, in terms of what you write, you know, you talked about your, your work being kind of like um, current urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. When, when you think in terms of your, your characters being, you know, quote, urban, you know, which I guess they translate into, automatically translate into, well, black, you know, but, but when you craft your story, are, are the characters black because they're people you know, people you are familiar with? and you want to do stories about people who reflect your own culture, or, or do you have a more political bent? Or, you know, when you set out to write a story, 
where does that consideration sit for you? And, and, you know, once you tell me about yours, because I'm very interested to hear this from just about every black author I know, um, I, I really, you know, these are stories, these are instances that I have to take to Worldcon. Mm-hmm. And, and so for you, when you write, how is race formulated inside your story? Uh, race actually plays a, a very small part in the Nice of Enmity series. Um, okay. It's, it's, it's diverse, and I did that with the intentions of not being labeled uh, an African-American fiction book. Um, okay. I, I, I feel like that label limits our audience. And so um, not it's not one that we should be ashamed of. I'm not saying that, but as far as um, getting it out there to, uh, you know, just other readers. I wanted to draw a diverse, because um, my world is actually diverse. And when I started uh, querying, you know, agents and, and publishers, I realized that in their minds, diversity is also subjective. If you've got that one black guy on the team, that's diversity for them, and it's cool. But if <laughs> yeah. you have, if you have, you know, if six out of your your twelve black knights are black, then okay, that's a little too much right there. You see what I mean? So um, I did, however, a lot of my main female characters are black because I feel like um, there aren't enough empowered women. Um, taking, um, you know, that protagonist kind of role in... Right, uh, in general, sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, I don't really focus on the white female characters in Knights of Entity so much. They're there, but they don't really play a a very big role. Um, So I did do that intentionally. But um, I wanted to be able to say that, hey, this is a diverse book, and more than just one race is being represented here. So, you know, I have a Chinese knight. Um, I have, um, like, my main guy, Cesare. Even though he's a historical character, in my book, Uh he's actually half black. His mom is black. And I do that for reasons that will be revealed in book three, actually. Um, like I have Lancelot. Lancelot is half black, so he's mixed. Um, you know, I have Adonis, he's white. Um, Caden is actually Scottish. Um, so I, 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 I was very methodical about who got what race. And, it, and as I wrote, I was like, you know what, this would actually be more interesting if Rufus Celsius was white, and he is. So okay. he's actually the yeah. leader. Um, and I was like, because at first I wrote him as a big kind of burly black guy with a big fuzzy beard, and, you know, he's just a real rough guy, but I was like, you know what? His voice to me did not speak this big burly black man, and so I feel like, you know, the characters kind of evolve into what they are, and um, uh, it's just like Miss Chrissy. Miss Chrissy is actually um, a transgendered witch in the Knights of Enmity world. And I feel like when we talk about diversity, we tend to leave out 
um, you know, the LGBT community. Why can't sure. they be magicians? Why can't they be powerful? Why can't they, um, you know, save the world? And so she's in the book, and she actually, um, you know, she kind of gets into a little scuffle because she's a she's a blue goddess, and the blue goddess is an all-female order. But she uh-huh. earned her trident, and so, you know, in the book, a girl tried to, you know, run up on her and be like, you know, why are you even here? You're a guy. And, you know, right. she's... she's She's that person in the book that's always trying to prove herself. She's comfortable with who she is, but other people are not comfortable with who she is, if you kind of get my drift. So that's kind of her struggle. Um, she actually has a very sad backstory, um, but she's a very powerful person, and she actually, um, she she kind of, she, she gets crunk in book too. But, um, you know, but... When it comes to race, I also look at, you know, gender. And, 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 you know, I have gay alchemists. You know, Solon, he's completely insane, but he likes what he likes, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I did that as far as the race because I, I was going to create this all, you know, black magician kind of book, but then I was like, you know, I kind of want white, white writers. I, I mean, white readers. I want Asian readers. I want... Hispanic readers. I want readers from everywhere because that's just well, no, I mean, the world. That, mm-hmm. that makes that makes perfect sense, you know. And and I think that there, if if we have a gauge, you know, like a a, a diversity sensitivity gauge for a black person, you know, you can, you know, maybe on one end it's oh mainstream where all of your characters are what what you know like sci-fi agents expect where they're they're all white you know and maybe that like you said that one you know that one black person for diversity or top dead center is actually just reflecting the world the world we live in where like you said there are you know there there are blacks there's hispanics there's there's asian there's there's uh uh, uh, oh, I almost said dot Indians and uh, woo woo Indians, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but <laughs> well, you know, um, but but you know, Top Dead Center is a a tale that has characters that accurately reflect the world we live in, and then over to the other side is okay. Well, we have an all black cast because you know for whatever you know, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's uh, maybe 30,000 years in the future and we're dealing with a universe where where blacks are dominant, you know, or, or whatever. And I think that what people are finding out is that to tell the story with that reflects the country we live in, largely reflects the country we live in, are stories that people are now starting to get a handle on and, and, and starting to really like. We already know that movies that reflect actual, you know, normal diversity make more money than than movies that don't. You know, it's just going to take a while for the Hollywood studio system to pay attention to that. And we got to be on them about that and not not complaining, you know, about, about, oh, you don't have enough black people in there. You know, that'd be like, you know, if they did Nick Cage and and it, everybody in it was white, that would be like ridiculous. You know, and mm-hmm. and wouldn't work. And and that 
Nick Cage would not have broken Netflix if there was a whole bunch of white folks in there. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it reflected a certain time period, a certain area of New York, you know, Harlem, and, and the kinds of people who live there and move and groove in that, in that neighborhood, in that community. It made perfect sense. Um, I like the fact that you, you have consciously chosen to, to be inclusive in a way that's, that's natural. You know, it's not forced. It's not, oh, I got to have me one of these. I got to have me one of those. Oh, I can't forget these people over here. You know, and right. and I think I think the stories that are told that way are probably going to, furthermore, stand the test of time much much better than, you know, other stories. I mean, look at how we look at a, a Huckleberry Finn now. You know, you have some activists who want to have the book rewritten because it's got nigger in, you know, which was entirely appropriate when Samuel Clemens wrote it right. you know, and, and reflected the culture of the day. I'm not mad at that. I don't get mad at that at all. You know, I love the fact that Richard Pryor took the word away from white folks and now they can't use it anymore <laughs> unless at, the, at their own peril. You know, Paula Dean, whoever. You know, go ahead, use the word, but if you get your ass whooped, don't come crying to me. Right. Um, but but when you look at diversity, diversity is not picking and choosing. Diversity is just naturally reflecting the the, the conditions around you. You know mm-hmm. now what was what's that movie coming out uh, with Scarlett Johansson? Uh, it, is that oh, Ghost, Ghost in the Machine? In the mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell. You know and uh, go, yeah, Ghost in the Shell. So now you know a lot of people are upset because oh this is another example of whitewashing. That, that's actually the secondary thing that it is. The primary thing that it is is a financial decision. That was a financial decision, not what they pay her, but people will come to see her, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, we also have to be sensitive to the fact that all of this is a business, but when you do something obviously wrong, your butt should be called on it. So your writing, I think your writing is brilliant because right out of the box, you picked, I think, the best way, the top dead center way of portraying, you know, an urban landscape. So I, I you know, my hat's off to you. Thank um, you. When, when, when you, in, you said you didn't read much, but you had to have read some things, you know. Have you read anything in, you know, the sci-fi fantasy horror genre other than, you know, the, the, the leanings of some of those classics into those, those genres? Um, are you know, and, and I guess I'm asking, are there other authors who may have been an influence for you? I'm trying to think. I, I mean, I was like an Edgar Allan Poe person. I, you know, Lovecraft. Um, mm-hmm. When I when I did read um, fiction, I'm trying to think. Like I, I enjoy sci-fi films. But as far as actually reading sci-fi books, I did not do, and I can't say that I have. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I did read the Harry Potters. I just, um, and I have read, um, a, what, like two or three of Sherilyn Kenyon's books, um, like Astronaut, mm-hmm. and um, I think they're part of her Dark Hunter series. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't really have like a long list of of fictional authors that I read, and I I hate to admit that, um, 
but yeah, like the the fictional authors that I did read uh, have been dead a hundred years. I just like old stuff. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Call it classic. Call it classic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, there's there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I don't I don't want you to think that that's some sort of lack on your part or some deficiency. You know, it, I it's good for two reasons and maybe only bad for one reason. Well, it's it's really good for the fact that you're untainted by what other people have written, which is good because then you don't end up writing something derivative of so-and-so or such-and-such. Um, but then on the other hand, the bad thing is is you might write something that looks exactly like so-and-so and such-and-such, not knowing because you haven't read. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it's it's... That's sometimes where, you know, beta readers could help, you know, Yeah. I guess. But, but you know, one of the things, I was so lucky, you know, I, I don't make any bones about it. I'm like 189 years old. But <laughs> I, read, I read just about everything in the golden age of science fiction. And, and a lot, I mean, I read a lot, probably up until maybe, maybe the mid-90s. And I, I kind of cut back on my reading. I used to read, you know, a couple books a week, three books a week. But what that did was that gave me the insight to create a plot that was not derivative of anything that anybody else had done. Mm-hmm. That's why it was important to me. Um, you know, I would have been, I would have been heartbroken and embarrassed as hell if I would have done the whole Dark Side trilogy and somebody said. Oh man, that's just like Brigadoon, or you know, whatever, whatever it could have been. Um, and and being as paranoid as I am in terms of being a writer, I would never want that to happen. You know, I I so over research things because I don't want some Tom Clancy wannabe, you know, to to read my stuff and go, oh man, that's just like so and so, or or that couldn't be done because of this or that. Um, and and that's just my my angst as a as a writer, but my approach is like your approach in in that in the situations where it's warranted. Let's say I'm writing about, you know, the White House. The White House probably has a, you know, a somewhat mixed complement in it, you know, more so under President Obama than previous or <laughs> presidents after subsequent presidents. <laughs> or, or, or the military. The military's um, environment, you know, the military's culture is what it is and it has been for a long time and it's only recently, recently that it started to change. So when I look at writing, you know, I, I'm like you that I want it to be, I want it to reflect accurately where we are today because then that also helps to keep the reader from having to suspend disbelief. You know, the the worst thing in the world for me is when I'm reading a book and then all of a sudden I read something that is just so ridiculous and makes so little sense that it takes me right out of the story. Right. Um, when you when you go back and read, you, you know, what you've done, let's say you finish the book and then you put it away for a little while, then you go back and you start going through it yourself. Are there certain things that you see, certain tendencies in your writing that you think need improvement? And and I asked that because I didn't ask you, you know, did you take any writing classes? Did you, you know, did you do any professional development as an author that that helped you, or were you were you just kind of kind of naturally brought into it, brought yourself um, into it? 
Yeah, I actually, um, other than um, just my English courses in in school, I mean, um, as far as like professional writing and um, taking a workshop and all that kind of stuff, I I didn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which you know, I, and I'm not opposed to it because I'm I, I'm one of those forever learners. You know, I I learn forever. You know, I, yes. I can't say that I know everything. I don't know anything, really. You know, I just, um, I read a lot, and um, I retain a lot, but I don't know anything. So, and I, I, I kind of just live by that approach. Um, as far as uh, when I, <laughs> I feel like I use extra words that I shouldn't. I know um, i read an article somewhere, and um, Stephen King, he was just like, you know, one of the things that, you know, new authors mess up a lot is you try to sound intelligent. So you use these big mm-hmm. words out of context or, you know, in places that, you know, it doesn't belong. And so, um, you know, just restructuring my sentences where, um, you know, I'm like, uh, instead of just saying he went to the store, he went around yonder to, you know, three streets down the road. You know, just like, I you know, you, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, just, you know, kind of get to the point. And so um, that that I still have, you know, some, I have loads to improve on, you know, and I will probably be improving for the rest of my life. Um, but that's, that's the journey of it all, you know. Um, I think um, I hate going back and reading, especially after it's been published, and I'm like, dang, this would have been real good in there. And then it's like, you know, but you didn't put it there, Dree, so just, you know, forget it. I'll write it down in my little notebook because then maybe right. I can put it somewhere else. But, um, but yeah, I hate having, like, those afterthoughts, and it's like, oh, crap, that would have been perfect right here, you know. Or... You know, during the editing process, you take something out that was kind of vital for the sake mm-hmm. of, like, this wordage or whatever. I hate doing that. And then, like, you forget what you wrote. And then it's like, so now I have files, like, during my editing phases, I have, like, you know, Nights 1.0, Nights 1.5, 1.7, because I, I <laughs> save each one before I change it because I don't like deleting something and then not remembering what was there. <laughs> so <laughs> I have lots of files. I, I, yeah, I, I have the same problem. You know, when I first started writing, you know, like I said, you know, 330,000 words, you know, what was I thinking? But that was 330,000 words because I didn't know any better. And then I'm actually putting a, putting a, a, a link in the chat room for a book by John Gardner, and he's a great novelist. He also picked up the James Bond series and did a lot more after Ian Fleming. And, um, you know, it's called On Becoming a Novelist. And one of the things that I have tried to take to heart that was one of the hard lessons that I, I, I learned was if it doesn't move the story along, take it out. You know? Mm. Um, because I have a tendency to fall in love with my words. I figure, well, you know, I've busted my ass to put these words together to make this beautiful thing. And, you know, then then one of my editors go, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't move the story along. I'm taking it out. And, and you know, then 
you know, I cry a little bit and, you know, not in front of my editor, but, you know, and then, <laughs> then I'm okay because, no, I mean, seriously, it, it's probably a good piece of advice. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm like you. I think the best creatives are probably lifelong students. Um, I, I'm learning new things about editing and, you know, more of the nuts and bolts about it because I didn't pay much attention in the beginning. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm actually learning more about the business side too. Now, from your perspective, what, what have been like some of the valuable lessons you learned you know, after that first book debacle, um, that that you could tell, you know, newer writers to hopefully have them avoid what you went through. Um. Well, um, my experience was basically um, more so uh, with a vanity publisher, and right. and of course, you know. Everybody knows that, you know, if you're, you know, reading, they always say, you know, stay away from vanity publishers and whatnot. But these new these new wave publishers, they kind of mask themselves to where they don't look like vanity publishers, but they are. And so okay. the issue was, you know, I signed this contract and I'm excited because this happened after like 50-something-odd rejections. So this wasn't like a spur-of-the-moment kind of thing, I was just like, oh, my God, finally somebody, you know, enjoys my work. So um, long story short, I did my own editing. I did my own cover designs. I did my own marketing. I did my own everything. It was basically me self-publishing. But then at the same time, you had these people trying to take 40% of my royalties. For doing nothing. <laughs> right. So, um, right. you know, and, and like I said, I had to end up, you know, going to get a lawyer and doing all that kind of stuff to get my publishing rights back. And um, they actually did not fight because they knew that, you know, hey, you know. What they were. I, yeah. Because, I mean, I sent all the proof. And so my lawyer was like, well, you know, this was actually, I mean, they actually, like, breached the contract. So, um yeah, so I think my advice to new writers is don't sign the first contract that comes your way. I mean, rejections happen. Don't get overly excited. Make sure that it's legit. Um, one thing I would say is maybe go and look at um, what the other publishers have published or what the publisher has published, what the mm-hmm. reviews are kind of legitimize uh, where they are or what they're telling you. Um, and that's something that I didn't necessarily do. All I saw was, you know, a bunch of people were getting signed and they were selling books. And this one guy, he kept hitting, like, the number one in poetry and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, so, you know, maybe they are legit. But um, no, they it's a vanity publisher. And then it's like, they release my book and then they jack the prices up to like twenty dollars and I'm like, dude, I'm a new author and you know, you can't have my you've got to be competitive, but that's because they're skimming off the top and then they were lying to me about royalties and all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I just I had to part ways. 
So, um, you know, but yeah, like I tell people, just just do some research. Um, I used to go on Predators and Editors, but I don't think that site's up anymore. I don't know what happened to it. But um, that used to be a good source of information for, you know, just to see what, what the publisher is doing. I can say this, William, um, the next book that I'm working on, I'm trying to, it's almost like an experiment. I'm kind of tailoring this book to fit the market's need for diversity. So it's not necessarily um, what I think it should be, but I think it could get the attention of, you know, a major publishing house. So mm-hmm. I'm going to try this again and not necessarily do my own thing, but kind of go with, with the market folks because I think one of the things that we as, you know, black authors can do is maybe, we, I mean, we have to get our foot in the door some kind of way. And sometimes it's not necessarily the way that you want, but if you can get your foot in the door and then say, hey, I got this other book, though, you know, like check this out. You know, but like right now, if you don't have an agent, you don't have a, you know, a major contract or anything, you're just kind of a voice, you know, um, with no power really. But if you can get a contract and just kind of get some of that publicity, um, build your fan base up, so that's kind of what I'm working on now just to, to see what happens um, while still doing my thing with Knights because I know that Knights is kind of a concept that's not going to be, uh, like it might take some proving to uh, some of the major publishing houses that it could, you know, really do well. So I'm, I'm going to try something new. Because that's that's what we do in life. We try new things. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah, definitely, definitely. But yeah, that that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what happened with that. Um, for you, you know, let's let's talk about the highlights of of what you're doing. What's what's the best part about writing for you? Is it is it seeing your work in print? Is it crafting a great story and getting out there? I mean, when you when you sit down and you think about you know where you are now, you've got you know you got the you know work already out there and published. What what's the best part? What gives you the most joy? I love when people come up to me and say, "Hey, I really enjoyed that." Like I I think every author does because um mm-hmm. you know we we I guess in our minds we hope that people will like it, but it's not until they do actually like it that you kind of get some, you know, gratifying energy that, you know, make you want to do it again. So um, that, that's really the, the best part about it. Um, <clears throat> I actually, um, I enjoy the whole process, even the editing. I know people think editing is a drag, but um, it makes you a better writer. That's actually like the, you know, that's like the the CrossFit for for writers right there. Like you, because you you catch those errors and you're like, okay, well that sounds stupid. You take that out, you know, scaling mm-hmm. down a two hundred thousand word novel to one hundred twenty five thousand words. I mean, that takes a gift, and then you have to kind of uh, do something with those words. I'm like you, William. I hate throwing away words, so <laughs> I use them somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like 
Yeah, I, I, I hate doing that. Like, I really do because um, it's not that it's bad or it's, or that it's even, um, you know, just chunky. I just feel like, you know, hey, it might fit better somewhere else. I'm I, I just I'm I'm not gonna throw away ten thousand words. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, I threw away twenty thousand. Um, and and now that you've mentioned that, I I'm actually after the show, I'm actually gonna go wherever I hid them from myself, and I'm gonna read it to see two things. One, why it took me so damn long to figure out uh, this isn't going where you want to go, and two. <laughs> And two, to just take a look at why it wasn't going to do it, because that that was the toughest thing I've ever done writing, which was to have to to throw away to to get rid of twenty thousand words. That was yeah. Well, yeah, you know, or maybe maybe sixteen thousand, somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand words. Um, and I, man, I thought I tried all the mental gymnastics I could to see, well, can I, can I slip this in someplace else? Can I do, can I make a little change? But, excuse me, just couldn't do it. Um, we're down to about our last 10 minutes. Um, we know what you're going to do for your series. You know, you're probably going to have seven or more volumes in the night series. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have other kind of creative universes floating around in your head? You mentioned all of that writing that you've done over the past X number of years that are sitting in that folder. Um, do you do you have another kind of epic universe that might follow what you're doing right now? Um, I think I have a possible trilogy. Um, I don't. I don't really want to fill the beans on it because it's still kind of in the development mode. Oh, no, no. No, you don't have to. I'm just I'm just curious. Yeah. Are, are you thinking past that? And it sounds like you are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't want to be just uh, – I, I want to kind of expand my horizon, so to speak. So I do want to try to write in different genres. Um, I've written um, – you know those, like, uh, those uh, short, like, erotic books? I wrote a couple of those, so uh-huh. I'm going to see if I can do something with them. Because, I, I mean, I just feel like it might be – I don't want to waste books, you know. I want to just do something mm-hmm. with them. Um, I'm actually, like, tomorrow I will be dedicating a lot of my time to this horror novel um, that I started back in 2008, I believe it was. Um, and uh, it's about an exorcist. I love exorcist movies, by the way. Um, just any kind of exorcist movie. Um, so I'm going to be doing that. So it's uh, it's horror. So that's a different genre for me, and I, it's it's a little it's different because it's like you have to you know build suspense where there isn't any. And sure, you know, just yeah, you know, and it's it's your choice of words and your placement and you know the shadow was cast and you know I have to put my you know, Edgar Allan Poe kind of had on because I like that gothic kind of horror. Um, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely have some other projects going on. You know, it's funny. I just remembered that I had written, co-written a story with three other authors, and it was it was kind of like an erotic... Eh, it was porn. Um, and, but... 
But what we did was each of us would take turns. And I always, you know, would write my, my part and then leave not a cliffhanger, but something where it made it a little more difficult for the person behind me to write. Um, could you see yourself doing, you know, collaborative writing with another person? Have you ever considered um, that? I, and, and not erotica, but just, just plain writing, you know? <laughs> um, actually, um, I have, but I have to have a really good connection with that person. Like, we have to be uh-huh. on the same wavelength. I know, because, I mean, conflict comes, because it's kind of like, um, you know, I think of the writing world like the Olympics. Everybody's the best. And so, whereas you can learn from other people, um, and, and some people are just easier to work with than others. I've thought about it. And then I stopped thinking about it because I was like, I don't want the hassle. Um, uh-huh. So it might be further down the line. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm open. I'm not going to shut the door on it. But um, but yeah. for right now, not so much. Yeah, for right now, not so much. Because I'm trying to uh, clean up my own stories. Because, I, like I said, I mm-hmm. have so much stuff that's just like half written. So I'm trying to clean my own stuff up right now. And um, right. so we'll see where it goes. Cool. Um, I'm looking at the time here. We've got about seven minutes to go. Actually, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to see if Jarvis can jump in and you two can talk about your experience last weekend at the convention. Mm-hmm. Um, but he might be downstairs eating pizza, you know, and then I'm <laughs> and listening. So I'm gonna make him bring, you know, run his ass upstairs and grab the phone, hopefully, um, because conventions are are becoming more and more of a networking opportunity for for creatives and specifically black black creatives, and and I think that uh, um, I think that it's useful to let people know what they're in for when they, you know, w- when they commit to having to be an entrepreneur because that's essentially what you are as a black creative in the very beginning unless you're lucky enough you know to get a get a, get a big publisher behind you so i <laughs> excuse me so if if Jarvis can uh, is not eating pe- oh there he goes he's on his way see i knew, <laughs> I, knew I knew you know i knew he was eating pizza cuz i i know i know when i'm done i'm going to get me some wings or I thought you were joking about the pizza. No, he. I, I think at the very beginning he said that one was on its way. Yeah, anyway, I thought um, he was joking. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, have you done a lot of these conventions? No, OnyxCon was actually my first one. Okay, and yeah. and when when you got there, you said you recognized Jarvis right away, and he, mm-hmm. he is with us now. Uh, so why don't you two talk a little bit about the about the convention because we got about five minutes left and let people know what this this kind of experience is like. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think for me, like when I arrived, um, I you know everything sometimes doesn't go as planned, and um, I know the organizer. Um, shout out to um, Jay Wheeler the third. Um, but he, you know, he had to kind of make some adjustments. So, um, and, you know, when you're there, you just have to kind of work with 
you know, the situation. So, um, but after we got set up and, um, you know, the people started coming in, it was nonstop. It was like a, uh, what's that rotating door, like at uh, hotels and stuff? Revolving door? Yeah, revolving door. (laughs) It was. It definitely was. Like, I wanted to actually go around to the different booths because um, there were a couple people that I wanted to, you know, um, chat up with, and uh, but we couldn't move. And I was, like, in the middle room, so, um, and I was, like, right, my table was right in front of, like, the Tuskegee people. So, um, yeah, so, like, their traffic, and then they would all, you know, wrap around to my table, uh, which I was, you know, I'm not ungrateful for, but um, it, it got really busy. And so mm-hmm. by the time I saw Jarvis, he sold all his T-shirts, and he all he had left was a nightgown. So, um, so hopefully I can catch him on next Saturday and get me a Black Science Fiction Society shirt. Well, I think it would be feckless of I think it would be feckless of him not to have one saved under the under the table for you, (laughs) knowing that you're coming. Right, right. But you know what? I can't say that because actually, because I I ended up selling out of my books, um, which I was surprised. Uh, Um, I I was really surprised um, because I didn't. I really went with the anticipation of just kind of um, networking and meeting new people and different things like that. But I actually sold out because I was going to give drivers a book, but uh, yeah, I ran out. That's pretty cool. And Jarvis, you're an old hat at this. What do you, uh, what number convention is this for you? Do you remember? Oh, probably hmm, might be around two dozen, or at least a dozen, almost twenty. Because I've been going to them for a couple of years, and so right do the uh, the same. Well, basically do about at least like uh, three or four. We're well, really about four a year. And last year, I actually bumped it up to 10. So that was completely by accident, but it was a good experience. Um, but the uh, honest con thing this weekend, it really was a great event. Uh, like you said, I didn't know how things were going to go because I ended up um, not, they didn't have the normal size uh, tables. And so, you know, all my stuff is set up for a six-foot table, but we had to make adjustments because the county had to use the other space for voting. And so they made the best of the situation and put us in uh, a a workable space. But where I was, I couldn't put my um, poster or my sign-up, and I couldn't use my TV. So I was like, wow, I'm used to having my set up a certain way and I was like, wow, um so I'm just gonna have to go basic this time. But the great part, I was right up front. So it was one of the first probably the first person the first table that anybody saw coming into that area. So that helped out a lot. I think we sold out of everything but maybe two books and mm-hmm. um that four X T shirt and maybe a handful of posters, but I always have a bunch of posters. But it was a great experience in terms of meeting other um, other creators because when we went down, um, and I think I need to update the maybe with ten more things on the on the um, convention checklist. But um, I always go with someone else so that when uh, I need to step away to the restroom or I want to take pictures or 
you know, go around the network, I can trade off with someone else and keep keep everything flowing. And so that I sure. think I picked that up after the second year of going to events. Um I remember I took my son one year. He actually ran my booth for a while, and he also ran someone else's booth when they needed to, because uh, they they were in a similar situation. So I was like, he was like, "Can you watch my booth?" I was like, "Well, he can do it." And you know, he sold a shirt and everything. <laughs> but mm-hmm, uh, why did mm-hmm. I went to the restroom? But they're great um, avenues for us to um, sell our stuff to network and their culture events. Cause you get to experience other people's work in terms of comics and art and shirts. And some lady had, um, candy. I mean, samples of different stuff. I've been to other ones where, um, you know, they have face painting for the kids They have dolls. It, it's a cultural experience. And these events are, they're a niche market and they aren't, as highly trafficked as, you know, the Dragon Cons and things of that nature. But in terms of uh, getting your work out there and getting it sold, I think these are the best, um, what is it, bang for the buck? Yeah, because they have a low entry in terms of how much a booth costs. And the target artists, they come with money in hand, ready to buy. They have a set budget. And they're ready to buy some stuff themselves and their kids, and so it's up to you to, to get up there and you know and let them know what you what you what you have. Because they were like entire family. The one guy had like eight kids. <laughs> Several people came in with a bunch of kids like that, and so you know you just make sure that you have something that covers each um, age range. You're gonna do well. But nice. these, these events are, are awesome. I can't wait to go to the next one. Which is coming up this weekend, uh, this next weekend, starting Saturday. It's, it's a two-day event, and uh, I'm just, I'm just excited. I'm re- excited all over again because it's gonna be like, okay, round two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very oh, and, cool. and, the, and the other part, just uh, as always, I love being able to meet uh, members of the site in person. It's always super cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I um for me <clears throat> I, I I meet some people from the site, but the coolest part for me for the two conventions I've been to was meeting people I had interviewed face to face. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's fantastic. I, mean, I I have one of the luckiest jobs in the world because I get to interview, you know, creatives in black science fiction, fantasy and horror. And, and in all kinds of mediums, and and that these these are people I never never would have met otherwise, you know. <laughs> and that's pretty cool. Well, I mean, it, it, seriously, I, I I never would have. Um, this this show has afforded me opportunities that I would not have had otherwise. So of course I'm always grateful for the fact that uh, that that I managed to to get to do this as often as I do. So. Um, but then, you know, up until about an hour and, you know, 12 minutes ago, I wasn't thinking about stalkers. <laughs> now, <laughs> man, you know, now I got a whole different perspective about doing the, the convention circuit. I'll probably oh, be over it by the time I have to get to the next convention, but you just never know. Yeah. Well, see, when you get stalkers, make sure that they buy your stuff. 
And, like, you can stalk all you want. Just buy some. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, take this book buy, with you. Buy some books. Let's do what the mix Buy some books. And, by the way, run outside and go get me some crutches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, anyway, we have come to the end of our night. Uh, I want to thank both of you. Actually, uh, I owe somebody oh, to pencil me in for the – oh, okay. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm not sure who we have next week, but let's thank uh, Cedric for being here. And I, oh, I hope you had a good time. Did you have a good time? I did. I did. I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm so grateful that you guys had me on. Um because I, I, well, I knew it was going to be a great show because um, we we really had a good conversation um, last week, even, you know, with the technical difficulties. But um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the site, and I enjoy all the people that I'm meeting along the way. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. It, it, actually, it was, it was my pleasure because this was, this was easy. Uh, this you made it very easy for me, and and I think people got to know you, you know, a bit better, which always makes for a great a great interview. So thank you very much for showing up and and having some fun with it, uh, Jarvis. As always, thank you for hanging out and uh, you know taking care of business even while you were uh, uh, having your pizza. Oh yeah, I got the pizza here. I had to shoot my son out. He was in here playing videos. <laughs> and so uh I guess uh we'll just basically close it out tonight. I want to thank everybody who helps make this show possible. Thank I want to you thank the people who listen to it um both live and pick it up as a podcast. We try to bring you somebody new every single week. And uh we're 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 always trying to bring new personalities to the forefront so you can check out what it is they do. Um, So on behalf of everybody here, uh, I want to wish both you two and everybody listening good night. Yay. Yay. Everyone good night. Good night.